Hello, this is Pastor Matthew. I just want to take a moment personally to say thank you so much for taking time to listen to this podcast. Our mission is to impact the valley and bless the nations with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We encourage you to go check out our website at crosslinkva.com. By doing so, you can learn all about the ministries of Crosslink and how we're involved in the community. Please know we're praying for you. God bless you. If you have your Bibles today, I want to ask you to take them and open them with me to the book of James, to James chapter 4 for this morning's message and for our time together here today. Um, Over the course of the last month or so, we have been in a sermon series called Unhindered, Unhindered. And by going through the study, we've been looking at the fact that God calls us as Christians to live a life where we live in obedience to him, a life where we are growing in our relationship with him. So often as Christians, uh, we instead, in living that victorious life that Christ has offered, we instead live our life hindered, where we are defeated and where we are distracted and discouraged. We live our life instead giving in to the things of the world when God is saying, no, that's not what I have for you. What I have for you is so much better. Unfortunately, it doesn't take us long in life to realize there are things that can hinder us from living for the Lord. The Apostle Paul had that same experience when he wrote to the churches of Galatia in Galatia chapter 5, verse 7. He said at the beginning, you were running well. And and by that, he's saying to this church, hey, guys, you were doing well. You were living for the Lord, and you were honoring God, and and you were modeling Christ well to the community around you. You were a bright light for Christ. Like you You were doing great, but something stopped that. Something hindered that along the way. And so Paul asked the question, who hindered you? from obeying the truth. Well, the fact of the matter is, as a believer, that does not mean that I'm perfect, but as a Christian, it means that we have been forgiven by God and we are in a right relationship with him. And when you hear that phrase, you know, like the idea of being hindered, maybe you can relate to that well. Perhaps you've been a Christian for a while. Perhaps you can recall very clearly a time when you repented of your sin and you confessed Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Like maybe you remember that this morning. And remember that perhaps you remember the incredible joy that you felt immediately knowing that you were right with God and that you'd been forgiven of your sins, that your relationship with God was exactly where God wanted to be. Maybe you remember that. Perhaps in those early days of living for the Lord, you, you began to read God's word, the Bible, for the first time. And, and while some of it might have been difficult, you remember the excitement that you had to be reading God's word. And maybe you remember the, the passion even that you had to serve the Lord and how you, you couldn't wait to get to church to be around godly people. And you remember those things early on. Many, many times in those early days of living for the Lord, you, you think in that moment, like this feeling could never fade, like this excitement and this joy, this, this overwhelming peace with God, like this could never fade away. But so often, as is in life, the new begins to fade. And through seasons of life and seasons of maybe discouragement, things going ways that you didn't anticipate, maybe it's been a long time since you've been there. Maybe it's been a long time since you read God's word and, and man, God was just convicting you and speaking to you. Maybe it's been a while in the middle of a worship service where you were singing songs of praise to God, where you were just overcome by knowing that God was glorified by the praises that you were bringing. Maybe it's been a while that you were excited to read his word or passionate about serving. Maybe it's been a while to where even you look at the fellowship of godly people now, it used to be such a blessing. Now you kind of see it as a a chore. Well, I wonder if so-and-so is going to be there today. The fact of the matter is there are many things that can hinder us from living in the life that Christ came to offer where we live our life of victory in him. 
Now, of course, if you today were dealing with a physical ailment, if you had a physical health issue, I imagine that eventually, some of us longer than others, we would go to a doctor, right? We men tend to be stubborn patients, and so it takes a lot of prompting and prodding, or we could be on death's door before we finally go to the doctor. But we'd go to the doctor, and as we see the doctor, the doctor would begin to ask a lot of questions. And from his asking of questions, he would be trying to identify, or she would be trying to identify what is the cause and what is the source, what is the culprit of our health issue. And as they begin to get some sort of clarification, they begin to get specialized and very specific in those questions. And they begin to do tests and examinations, helping us to understand what the ailment is so that we can have the proper treatment. Well, really, in our sermon series of Unhindered, that's kind of what we're doing. We're looking at God's Word where God is showing us several specific things that can hinder us from living the life that He calls us to. And I believe as we allow the Holy Spirit of God to speak to our hearts and lives, as we open our hearts to Him, He will bring to mind and He will begin to poke and to prod into those areas that we need to deal with this morning. This morning, as we look, we continue to study this idea of being unhindered. Today, we come to the fifth hindrance that we see in God's word. Now, so far, we have seen the hindrance of disobeying God's word, right? When we, when we reject God's word and disobey it, it's going to prevent us from growing in the Lord and living the life of victory that Christ has called us to. We've also seen the hindrance of doubt. And when we don't live by faith, when we instead live by doubt, where we second guess everything that God calls us to do, and we begin to walk by sight instead of by faith, it greatly hinders us from the things that God is calling us to. We've also seen the hindrance of division and conflicts. When we are living our life in conflicts with one another, it has a dramatic impact on our spiritual walk with the Lord. And then last week, we specifically noticed a fourth hindrance, and that was the hindrance of unrepentance. What happens when we know we've done wrong, but instead of coming to God, confessing it and turning from it, we continue in it. We begin to see how that hinders our walk with the Lord. Today, we come to a fifth hindrance, and that is the hindrance of the flesh. The hindrance of the flesh. And God's word has so much to say about the hindrance of the flesh. Now, I have a disclaimer to say this morning as we get started. And that is that I am dealing with a wonderful, wonderful gift this morning called a sinus infection. Okay, I'm just confessing that to you today. And so my head is cloudy. If I start to repeat something for the second time or the third time or the fourth time, just throw your worship guide at me, okay? That'll be okay. You have my permission here this morning. James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10, the hindrance of the flesh. Can you stand to your feet if you're able to do so for the reading of God's word? James begins with an interesting question, and then he begins to answer it and tell us all about this major issue, this hindrance called the flesh. Here's what the Bible says. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, James says, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. 
Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose, that he jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us? Listen to this statement. But God gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to whom? The humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. We thank you for your love for us. Thank you for this time that we have together today. God, I pray that through your word that you would speak to each of our hearts and our lives. And God, I am regularly reminded that I can do nothing without you. And Lord, on a day where I'm physically struggling, I'm all the more reminded, God, that I am weak. So Father, I pray that in my weakness that you would be strong. God, would you speak to hearts and minds? May you take your word and use it to penetrate us in the deep recesses of our lives. And God, I pray that today, more than anything, we would be right with you and that you would change us in whatever ways you desire. We pray for your glory and for your name's sake. And everyone said, amen. God bless you. you. may be seated this morning. The hindrance of the flesh. If you missed some of those verses, we'll read them again in just a little while. The hindrance of the flesh. Maybe you're sitting here this morning thinking uh, that that's a strange title. When you hear the word flesh, maybe you think of our actual skin. You think of the word flesh in a literal sense, and you think about the ways that maybe it would hinder you. Perhaps you might think, but pastor, I can't do anything about the physical skin that God gave me. I can't do anything to change this, so what's the point of talking a message on it? Well, truth be told, there's lots of things about our flesh that we may not like, our skin that we may not like, but that's not exactly what the Bible is speaking of. Maybe you're here this morning and you have various skin conditions that are a hindrance and a frustration to you, and maybe you'd relate and you'd say, Pastor, I am hindered by my skin all the time. Or maybe you would be like me and you would say, I can't get a tan to save my life, and it frustrates you like none other, right? But here's the reality. When the Bible says the word flesh, it's not just referring to our outward skin, the epidermis, if you will. When the Bible uses the word flesh, it is usually speaking of the nature of a man or of a woman. It's not just speaking of the outward appearance, the outward skin that we might see, whether it be, uh, you know, have, have allergies or not, whether it be black or white or whatever. It's speaking of the nature within a person. In fact, our flesh, according to Scripture, is the nature that we have, which leads us away from the things of God. Now, now, Adam and Eve, the Bible tells us, were created, and they lived in the Garden of Eden at the very beginning. And, of course, they enjoyed a perfect relationship with God. They did not sin. They lived in a perfect garden. They enjoyed a perfect relationship. And everything was exactly as God intended for it to be. But the Bible says that Satan tempted Eve. And, of course, Adam in that moment didn't stand up to be the, the leader or the man that he should have been. And the Bible says that both Adam and Eve sinned against God. And we, of course, know that from that, the Bible says, since Adam sinned, so death has sp- uh, sin and death have spread to all mankind. Ever since Adam and Eve sinned against God, every person that's been born after them, we have all inherited what the Bible would call a sinful nature, which is described in the New Testament as our flesh. A pastor of a few years ago by the name of Mark Bubeck said it this way, The flesh is a compulsive inner force 
inherited from man's fall, which is expressing itself in general and specific rebellion against God and his righteousness. Listen to what he says. The flesh can never be reformed or improved. The only hope for escape from the law of the flesh is its total execution and replacement by a new life in the Lord Jesus Christ. So in other words, the flesh is the nature within me that frankly tempts me to do things that are not pleasing to God. It's the flesh within me that is constantly pulling me away from the things of God. Now, if we're honest about it this morning, we would have to admit today that all of us can relate to that, right? Like when we think about some of these other hindrances, we might say, well, that's not my struggle. That's not my challenge. That's not what Satan uses in my life. That's not my hindrance, if you will. But when it comes to the flesh, this is something that we can all relate to and we can all identify with. Sometimes it's easy for us, frankly, to have a self-righteous judgmental look where we look at other people and we'd say, well, man, they sure are struggling with this. But in the same time, we don't see our own struggle. And yet we all, the Bible says, struggle with our flesh. I'm reminded of the illustration of a little girl one day. She came home from school. The third day in a row, the teacher wrote a note to mom to say just how bad she had been in school. And so she got into the vehicle and she told her mama, she said, mama, the teacher wrote you another letter. And so before the, the mother even put the vehicle in drive, she, she got the card, she began to read the letter, she learned about her daughter's misbehavior again, and frankly, she was at her wit's end. And she said out loud to her daughter, she said, honey, you're giving me gray hair, you're going to make me go gray here at my young age. And the little girl was confused, she said, mommy, what do you mean by that? She said, well, honey, this is how God designed it. Every time you do something bad, God gives me a gray hair. That's what it means. Of course, the wise old little girl began to think and ponder what this really meant. And then she asked her mother the question. She said, Mommy, then why are all of grandma's hair, all of her hair are gray, right? <laughs> what that little girl understood is that we all are sinners. We all have this flesh. We all have this nature that we battle with. And so in James chapter 4, James begins to show us now how our flesh causes so many hindrances in our relationship with the Lord, and even in our relationship with others. Three things I want you to see about the flesh this morning, and I believe God will show us much and hopefully even convict us much in whatever ways he sees fit. So if you're ready, would you say, I am? Three things about the flesh. Number one, I've already said it, that is the struggle with the flesh. The struggle with the flesh. We see all throughout the Bible that God made us so that we might know him, that we might love him, and we might live for him. God wants us to have a relationship with him. But the Bible also tells us because we have been born into this fallen human nature, this, this fallen mankind, if you will, that we have been born with this fleshly sinful draw that pulls us away from the very things of God. God made us to know him and to love him. And at the same time, we have this fleshly nature that pulls us away from him. It's interesting to note that all throughout the Bible, anytime you see the words, the flesh mentioned, it's always mentioned in a negative context. Listen to these words. Romans 7 verse 18 tells us, there is no good thing in the flesh, not a single good thing in the flesh. That'll just bless your heart, won't it? And in John chapter 6 verse 63, literally it says, the flesh profits nothing. It's of no good benefit, eternally speaking. And Philippians chapter 3 says it this way, it says to put no confidence in the flesh. 
Sometimes somebody will do something and we'll say, well, I would never do that. And Paul says, no, 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 no. Don't you put confidence in your flesh because in your flesh you will struggle and you will fall along the way. So I believe James points to us three specific principles about the struggle that we have with our flesh. So what does our flesh do that causes such a significant struggle in our life? I believe James says it does three things. Number one, our flesh wars against us. It wars against us. Now, I realize that some of us don't like at all the word war. None of us like to think of conflict. None of us like to think of battles, and we like to think of uh, those types of challenges and those struggles, and, and we don't like to think of it in that way. But the Bible says, literally, there is a war that is taking place, a battle that is taking place, a conflict that is taking place because of our flesh. Look at what does he say in verse, verse 1. He says, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? And then he answers his question. Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members. Now, we all have this fleshly sinful nature that we are born with, right? So, so the Bible says we have this fallen sinful nature, but the Bible also says in 2 Peter chapter 1, if you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you believe that Jesus died and rose again, and you confess, Lord Jesus, please save me, take control of my life, the Bible says in that moment of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are forgiven of your sins, you're saved. But the Bible also says in that moment, God gives you a new nature. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4 says, we are made partakers of the divine nature. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says it this way, the old is now gone, the new has come. You've been made a brand new creation in Christ. In other words, at the moment of believing in Jesus, a writer of old used to say it this way, God changes your want-tos, all right? Like when I was living for myself, I was doing what I wanted to do. Whatever sinful desire crossed my mind, I did it, and I did it without any thought or any other, I mean, any thought for that matter. And yet when we believe in Jesus, we're forgiven and we're saved. We're given a new nature. We want to please God. We want to know God. We want to honor God with our life. God has changed us and made us a brand new creation. Here's the reality. When you become a Christian, there is now a real struggle that takes place. Yes, we have the new nature, the new man that we are in Christ, and yet at the same time, we still struggle with the old flesh of who we used to be. Now think of it for just a moment. Before Christ, I had a rotten attitude, I had anger issues, and my mouth was, was filthy. But the very moment I professed faith in Christ as my Lord and Savior, he not only forgave me and cleansed me, but now I wanted to use my voice and I wanted to use my mouth to honor God. And God helped me with all that anger and he, he set me free from those things. He set me free from that language. But here's the reality, in my flesh, when Satan tempts, in my flesh, when I began to look at the things of the world, I began to realize there's a very real war that takes place between the old and between the new. Here's the way that Galatians says it in Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 17. Paul says this, I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Paul's putting before them an option. You can walk by the Holy Spirit's control, or you can walk by the flesh. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you'll not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. Listen to this statement. For these are in opposition to one another, 
so that you may not do the things that you please. James asks a question. What's the source of these conflicts and these wars that are taking place within you? And then he answers the question in verse 1. The source is your pleasures that wage war in your members. The word for pleasures here literally means your lust. It's your sinful, selfish desires that war against yourself. Now, please understand, when I hear that verse of Scripture, in my flesh, I don't like it, right? Because the fact of the matter is, is that I would rather shift the blame. Something goes wrong, I don't want to think that it's me. If there's a conflict or an issue, I'd rather look and say, well, it's something else. It's some other situation. It's someone else's fault. But the Bible says the source of our conflicts within us is our lust. It's our pleasures that wage war even within our body, like even within our flesh. Now, we in our context, we often like to shift the blame, don't we? We lose a game. It's someone else's fault. Someone didn't do what they were supposed to. It's not my fault. We make a bad grade. Well, the teacher should have prepared us better for that. It's not my fault I didn't study well. Uh, we, we, we uh, you know, in the process of that, uh, we get some punishment or consequence. Well, it's not my fault. They didn't explain the consequences well. I didn't really know the rules. Now, James tells us the source of our conflicts, the source of these wars is literally within us. It is our pleasures that wage war in our flesh. In fact, the word for pleasures here should be their main pursuit in life, doing whatever they want to do. James says that is the source of these wars. It is our lust within our own flesh. The war with our flesh is very real, isn't it? In fact, if you don't realize the war with that flesh, my my guess would be that maybe, maybe we're ignorant or oblivious to the struggles in our own life. The Apostle Paul, even he, would acknowledge this war with the flesh. Listen to what he said in Romans chapter 7. Now, I would venture to guess most of us would agree that the Apostle Paul was one of the greatest missionaries who's ever lived. If you'd agree with that, would you say amen? All right. And I would even say if you're just studying the life of Christians who people are fully devoted to the Lord, like I would say, man, this guy's up there and the people that we would look at and admire and respect. But listen to what he said about his own war with his flesh. Romans chapter 7, verses 14 and 15, verses 18 and 19. Here's what he said. He said, for we know that the law is spiritual, spiritual, but I am of what? I'm a flesh. Sold in the bondage of sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. Verse 18. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my what? Flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. Verse 24, here's his conclusion. Oh, wretched man that I am, Paul says. Who will set me free from the body of this death? This is the apostle Paul. And Paul is looking at this struggle within him between the old man and the new man. He's looking at the struggle between the flesh and of the spirit. And literally, this is not him condoning sin, but he's in essence just being honest to share. There's this real struggle that's going on. There's this war that's going on between the old man and the new man, the man I used to be and the man that God's called me to be. He's describing the war with his flesh. The second thing I want you to see about the struggle with our flesh is not only does it war against us, but secondly, here's a major issue with our flesh. Our flesh always wants more. 
If we live by the ruling of the flesh, if we're letting our flesh guide us and direct us, if we're letting our lusts and our passions be the things that dictates our, our actions, if you will, it will leave us always wanting more. Listen to what he said in verse 2. He said, you lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. One of the major problems with our sinful, fleshly, selfish nature is that it is never content. Our flesh is never satisfied. Our flesh is always wanting. You feed the flesh, there might be satisfaction for just a moment, but I'm telling you in a split second beyond that, it will not be fulfilled. It will not be content. It'll always be wanting more. Our flesh is like an overzealous, always watchful, never-ending predator. And so James says, you lust, you want something, and do not have. Now, now think of this for just a moment. The word for lust literally means to earnestly covet or earnestly want. And so he's describing this longing, this yearning, this wanting for something, and yet you get it, and it's not fulfilling. You experience it, and you want more. Our flesh in many ways will look at us and convince us, well, if you just have this, then life will be grand. If you just have this experience, if you just uh, kind of test this, the water, so to speak, here, if you have this possession, if this happened, if you experience this wonderful thing, then your life will be set. But I'm telling you this morning that if you are listening to the lust of your flesh, it will not satisfy, and it will every single time simply lead you at the end, always longing and desiring for more. Our flesh, the Bible says, it calls us to lust, and yet we do not have because our flesh cannot satisfy. James says, you lust and do not have. Now think of this for just a moment. When we allow ourselves to give in and, and let our flesh rule the day, so to speak, Here's one of the major challenges with that. Not only does it always wanting more, but what we have will never be enough. Think for just a moment about Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. God creates them. He places them in the Garden of Eden. And one of the major things by living by our flesh is we begin to only see what we do not have and we lose sight of everything we already do have. Adam and Eve are here in the garden. God places in there to have a relationship with him. He gives them access and authority over the entire Garden of Eden, with one exception. He says, of this one tree, the knowledge of good and evil, you are not to eat of. That was good for a while, but when Satan tempted them, when, when Eve began to give in to the lust of her flesh, here's the deal. She lost sight of everything she, else she had. She lost sight of everything else God had given her. All she now saw was the one thing she couldn't have, and it was the one thing she wanted. And having lost sight of what she had, she pursued what she wanted, and she sinned against God. David was the same, was he not? David, the Bible makes it clear that he was a great king. He was a mighty warrior. I mean, he had had victory upon victory upon victory. He had wealth unlike any of us today can even fathom. He had lands, he had kingdoms, and even by many of which by contractual agreements, the fact of the matter is he had numerous wives. God had blessed him immensely. And yet in the midst of the blessing, in a moment of temptation and lust, all he saw was the one thing he wanted that he didn't have. 
He lost sight of everything else God had given him to pursue the one thing that he wanted. The Bible says here in the book of James, chapter 4, you lust and do not have. You've lost sight of everything else, and you're pursuing the one thing that you know God has told you not to do. And so he says, listen, your flesh are so much in control. Your lusts are so leading you. Literally, he said in verse 2, that you commit murder. What James is showing us here is the low extent someone will go to feed the desires of their flesh. Now, most of us would say, well, pastor, I would never commit murder to do, you know, whatever. Sadly, there are many people who thought they would never do that. I imagine that Cain never thought he would be in such a lustful passion about getting God's favor that he would kill his own brother, but he did. I imagine David, the man after God's own heart, would never have his most valiant warrior, Uriah, put on the front line of battle where he knew he'd be killed, but in his lust and his rage, he did. I imagine the Israelites never thought they would come up against Moses and Aaron trying to kill them simply for telling them the truth of God's word. But here's the reality. When our flesh rules the day, there is no extent that we won't go to in order to meet the desire and the lust. And so it tells us it's want, and that is that it's constantly wanting. And James goes on to say, you are envious, but you cannot obtain In your lust, you want certain things. You go to every length to have them. You get it, but it doesn't satisfy. It isn't fulfilling, and then you move on to the next one. We see that practically demonstrated all the time. I would imagine, how many of you people, how many of you would say, I'm a tech person. I love electronics and technology. Like, I enjoy those things. How many of you would say that that would describe you? Very good. Some of you. uh, I am not one of you, okay? I love you. Thank God that you're here, but I'm not a very techie person. But I'll never forget several years ago, I had gotten a new cell phone, and I was in need of a cell phone, and I was so excited about this because uh, I'd been waiting for a long time, and I'd been kind of just waiting to go into the whole smartphone world, you know, and I didn't want to have email right at my access for a long time, but at this point in my life, I was ready to get a smartphone. And I remember looking and searching and choosing what I thought was the perfect smartphone, and I got that thing, and I thought it was great for about six months until they came out with a new model. And the new model came out, and it was like, hey, man, this thing will brush your teeth, do your laundry, and everything else for you. This is awesome. And I quickly began to realize this is all part of their ploy. Every six months, there's something new. There's a new gadget. There's a new thing. And what I thought had the bells and whistles, it's quickly outdated, isn't it? Constantly wanting more, constantly wanting more. Well, our flesh is the same way. We desire something, so we pursue it, we experiencing it, experience it, we find that it doesn't fulfill. And so what does our flesh say? Our flesh says, oh, well, you just need to have something else. You need to take it one step further. You need to have this other thing. We pursue it to quickly find out what? It doesn't satisfy, it doesn't fulfill, and our flesh just keeps leading us in this downward spiral of digression, if you will. Why? Because it is always wanting, always feasting, always consuming more. The third thing about our struggle with our flesh is this. It weakens our walk. If you're still with me, would you say, all right? It weakens our walk. If we live our life controlled under the rule of our fleshly lusts and desires instead of the Holy Spirit's control and rule, it will weaken our walk and relationship with the Lord. Specifically, it hinders our prayer life, according to the book of James. Now, James chapter 4 is very interesting because in verses 1 and 2, for the most part, we see James describing 
frankly, in very graphic imagery and language, the struggle that we have with our flesh. And in the midst of that, James seems to come from completely out of left field to talk about praying. And if you didn't know anybody, you're kind of sitting back thinking like, James, where are you going with this? Like, what are you trying to say? Here's what he says in verse two. He goes from talking about quarrels and conflicts and the issues of our flesh to now saying, verse two at the very end, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Here's what James is getting to, I believe. James is saying, just as your flesh wars against you and your flesh is always tempting you wanting more and wanting more, your flesh also has a very direct impact in how you talk to God. The first thing it does is that it literally prevents you from talking to God. Now, now, now I would liken this, and, I, and please know that I'm not calling you a dog, and I don't want to be a dog either, but please understand, we, we don't have a dog at our house right now, but we have had a dog in the past, and there were numerous times that our dog, while we were gone, would do what a dog does, a puppy does especially, and it would chew up things. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, if you got any special shoes or clothes, just know, around a puppy, it's going to be destroyed, right? But, but, but I would come home, and I would look, and I would see the evidences that something had been destroyed. And because of the nature of it, I knew in this case that it wasn't my kids, okay? So I would call my dog, Bella, Bella, here, girl. And I'd even be sweet. <laughs> you know, like, I got a treat, got a treat. And she'd come to the room or come to the location, and she'd come very timidly, right? I didn't even say anything wrong. I got, like, my tone was good. I was trying to bribe her with treats, but... She knew she'd done something wrong. And in doing something wrong, she kind of distanced herself, if you will. She was, she was hesitant to come. But please understand, I'm not saying we're dogs, okay? But when we sin against God, when we're giving in to the desires of our flesh, when we know we're living our life in ways that aren't pleasing to the Lord, you know what it does? It causes us to be like, I'm not sure about this, Lord. I'm not ready to come to you, Lord. I, I don't want to be closer. No, we're, we're, content, we're kind of like cowering away in this hesitation. So, so it weakens our walk because it prevents us from coming to the Lord to ask of our needs. That's what it does. Now, when we're living by the Spirit, we are excited to come to the Lord in prayer. When we let in the Holy Spirit guide and direct our life, we're, we're ready to bring our needs to God. God, there's this need in my life. God, would you work in this situation? God, I surrender to you, and I trust that you know what's best for my life. And we're willing and ready to do that. But when we're living in our flesh, there's a division that's there. Literally, James says, you have not because you ask not. This is a direct result of our fleshly lust. And even in those times that we do pray, he goes on to say, not only does it prevent us from praying personally, but it prevents us from praying properly. He says in verse 3, so even you do ask, but you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. In other words, if I'm living my life according to the desires and the wants and the lust and the will of my flesh, I'm not in tune with God. I'm not walking by the Holy Spirit. My life not, is not surrendered to God's word. And so as a result of that, usually the things that I bring to God to ask about are going to be my wants and my will and my desires. I'm going to ask even according to my lust. So, so often there are there are times that someone have come to me as a pastor and said, hey, pastor, I'm praying this prayer, but I don't see God answering it. 
And I'll say, well, what exactly are you praying? And they'll tell me. And then I'll say, according to scripture, that's completely against God's word. The reason God's not answering this question is because you're praying something that is completely unbiblical. You're praying something that is opposed to the will and the nature of God. And so he literally says, you have, not because, you have not because you ask not. And when you do ask, you don't receive because you're asking with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Remember, Jesus told us as we pray, we are to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, we are to pray according to God's plan and purpose, not our own pleasures and our wants. Warren Wiersbe said it this way, our prayers must not be motivated by our pleasures unless the things that bring God pleasure are the things that we are seeking. A pleasure-driven prayer life will find that heaven is made of brass. So we see the struggle of our flesh. The second thing I want you to see this morning is this. I want us to consider the seriousness of living by our flesh. Now, please understand this morning, my hope today is to encourage us and to help us so that we leave here in a right relationship with the Lord. But frankly, the words that God uses through James in James chapter three, verses four and five, frankly, are very sobering. The words that we're about to read that we already read a moment ago, but we're gonna continue to unpack here together. The words that James uses were strong. I mean, even as James was pinning these words, it's like he's looking at the church and he's saying, everybody, everybody, sit up, listen, don't miss what God is saying. So in that moment, I want us to see the seriousness of living by our flesh. So somebody would be here today and say, Pastor, wait a second. So you're telling me we all have a sinful nature that wars against us to draw us away from the things of God. Yes, that's true. Maybe you'd be here today and you'd think, well, pastor, so if we all have this struggle, if we all have this issue, what's the big deal? Why is this so important? I believe it's important because of what God says next about those, frankly, who live their life under the control and the rule of their fleshly, lustful desires. Look with me at verses four and five. God speaks to James, and here's what he says. To those who live their life under the rule and the authority of their flesh, their desires, their passions, if you will, verse four, you, what's the word? Adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God? Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. Now, now please understand there's a difference in the presence of an old sinful nature and the rule of the old sinful nature. We all have been born into Adam's nature. We all have this natural structure, or this natural bent uh, to do things that are not pleasing to God. But the presence of a sinful nature does not mean that we're to let it rule and control our life. 
And so what God is in essence saying us here today is, is if you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you've been forgiven of your sins, if you've inherited this new nature, if you've been made, made a brand new creation, God is saying, so you need to live your life under the Holy Spirit's control, surrendered to him, walking with him, letting his word guide you, and not under the rule of your flesh. Should you live your life under the rule of the flesh? under the lust of the flesh, God says two things happen. First is, and he says it plainly in verse four, we become an adulterer. We become an adulterer. Spiritually speaking, from God's perspective, we have committed adultery. Now we understand what adultery is. An adulterer is one who has entered a covenant with someone who has violated that covenant by seeking another. And yet God says, spiritually speaking, that is what takes place when we let our flesh and our lust and our passions be the driving force in our life. Now, I would imagine that most of us here today, sadly, have bore the pain or have experienced, have witnessed firsthand the pain and the hurt and the heartache, the devastation that is caused by adultery. But spiritually speaking, God says, when you claim to love me and you claim to know me, when you claim to follow me and yet live your life unfaithfully towards me, you've done the same thing spiritually. Now, what would cause God to say that? That's a strong statement. He tells us in verse four, knowing that the friendship with the world is hostility towards God. What would cause us to be unfaithful to him is being at friendship, he says, with the world. Somebody says, wait a second, wait a second, pastor. Doesn't the Bible say God so loved the world and now he's telling me not to have friendship with the world? What is the Bible saying? Now, when the Bible uses the word world, it speaks of the word world in three different ways. Sometimes it speaks of the word world in a physical sense of the earth, if you will. When the Bible speaks of the world or the earth being his footstool, that would speak of the earth. The Bible also speaks his world as mankind, John 3, 16. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It's saying that Jesus didn't give his life for the earth. He gave his life for all mankind that all can believe and be saved. But the third use of the word world is describing what many would say as the spiritual system of the culture of the day that opposes the things of God. For example, Jesus would say of Satan in John chapter 12, verse 31, that he is the prince of this world. He's the prince of this system that opposes the things of God. And so the world in that sense is that force and that influence around us that is constantly distracting, constantly tempting, constantly trying to force us into its mold to pursue the things of the world and not the things of God. To that sense of the word world, the Bible tells us in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 and 17, these simple statements. Do not love the things do not love the world, nor the things in the world. Listen to what he says. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, it's not from the Father, but it is from where? The world. He concludes, the world is passing away and also its lust, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. 
We become a friend of the world, basically one small compromise at a time as we turn away from the things of God and to the voice and the direction of the culture around us that's pulling us away from the things of God. And God says, spiritually, it's adultery. Now, most of us in our culture, none of us, we would want to think about adultery. We don't want to think about that terminology. We don't want to think about what that portrays. We certainly don't want to think about what that means of us personally. But did you know all throughout the Old Testament, when God looked at his people who claimed to love him and yet where their hearts were far from him, over and over and over again, God described it spiritually as adultery. Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 20, listen to what God said. He said, surely, as a woman treacherously departs from her lover, so you have dealt treacherously with me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. He was saying that to people, frankly. They said, God, we love you with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But through their actions, they were worshiping other idols. Through their actions, they were turning their attention to other things. And they were saying on Sunday, basically, God, we love you. But over here, we want to do what we want to do. Listen to what the Bible says in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 16, verses 30 and 32. He says, how languishing is your heart, declares the Lord God, while you do all these things, the actions of a bold-faced harlot. God says, you adulterous wife who takes strangers instead of her husband. God is saying, listen, I'm the one who loved you. I'm the one who called you. I'm the one who made you great. I'm the one who gave you a new name. I'm the one who's working for you. I'm the one who's taking you to the promised land. I'm doing all these different things, and yet you've continually turned to other people, other things, cheap substitutes, and so he calls them as he saw them. In fact, in the Old Testament, God raised up a prophet by the name of Hosea, and literally God called him and told him to marry a prostitute in order to demonstrate to the people their own unfaithfulness to God, but also God's faithful love and pursuit of them to be right with him. So, Pastor, what are you saying? I'm saying to us this morning that when we say, yes, God, I love you. Yes, God, I want to serve you. Yes, God, we put on this appearance of being uh, being a worshiper of God. God, we want to honor you, and we want to live for you on Sunday, but then live the rest of our life doing whatever we please. God says, no. The only person you're fooling is yourself. Spiritually, I see the truth, and he calls it adultery. Not only do we become an adulterer, but we become an adversary. Look at what he says in verse 4. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Think of the sobering statement. God is in essence saying, listen, I loved you as a, as, a, as a groom loves his bride and looks out for her and cherishes her and honors her and, and blesses her. I, I love you and you could receive my grace and my mercy and my blessings and all these things. But because you have refused me, you've rejected me and you've turned to everything else and everyone else, God says specifically, you've become an enemy of me. And as a result, you experience the consequences of your actions. You experience the judgment that comes only from him. He said, Pastor, that's a sobering message. It is. You know, it it is. When you you read, there's no no sugarcoating that. There's no way to make that soft. There's no way to make that easy. I mean, this is what God says. But I do want you to know this morning, there is hope. And there is encouragement because of the next verse, verse 6. 
In fact, when James penned these words, he was pinning these to the early believers in the early church. And, and James, as he's writing these words, unfortunately, when he looked at the church, he saw the same struggles, the same sins, the same issues in the church as what was happening in the culture. The church looked no different than the culture around them. And so James, as he's pinning these words, he pinned these words as the Holy Spirit was giving direction because he knew there were real issues and there's real sin and there's real challenges and there's real struggles. And yet in the midst of it all, here comes this powerful moment of transition. It's found in verse 6 because it's here that James is going to show us, here's how you can have hope. Here's how you can have victory. Here's how you can be set free. Here's how you can be forgiven. Here's how you can experience the life that Jesus came to offer. He says it in verse 6. I love this statement. All these things be true. Yes, there was spiritual adultery. Yes, you became an enemy of God. Yes, you were giving in to the lust of your flesh. Yes, you were letting your lust have control. Verse 6. But God gives, listen to the statement, a greater grace. But God gives a greater grace. Friend, I want you to know God's grace is enough. God's grace is sufficient for every need. But here's the transition. The transition is this. It's not just that God gives grace. It's that God gives a greater grace. God's grace is greater than anything you brought to the table, than anything you've done, than anything of your past, than any brokenness you've experienced. God's grace is greater but I was a liar. God's grace is greater, but I was a thief. God's grace is greater, but I was an adulterer. God's grace is greater, but I was a murderer. God's grace is greater, but I was a drug addict. God's grace is greater, but you have no idea what I did to my family. God's grace is greater. It doesn't matter whatever but you bring to the table. God's grace is greater. And then he tells us on that basis, then the secret to how we have victory over the flesh. There is nothing good in the flesh, and it leads nothing but to, to death and to destruction, to division, to devastation. I mean, just, just all these things. And yet God's grace is greater. And so James, in these final moments, begins to tell us how we can experience victory over this rotten, depraved, wretched flesh. The key to it really is found in verse 6, but he begins to explain after that. Here's the key to experiencing this greater grace. He says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So on that basis, he tells us three things to do, and I believe he tells us three responses that happen as a result. Number one, if we're going to experience victory over the flesh first, we must submit to God and the devil will flee from us. We must submit to God and the devil will flee from us. The Bible says, submit therefore to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Now I have to confess, I've been around Christians for a long time. I've heard a lot of people quote the latter part of this verse, resist the devil and he's gonna flee from you. You just turn away from the devil and he's gonna flee from you. But here's a problem with that statement. Most of the time they say that, they completely miss the context. They completely miss the main command in that verse and that is submit therefore to God. Please understand the devil is not afraid of you. Guys, just resist the devil and he's going to flee from you. The devil is not afraid of you or intimidated by you. He is more clever than you and I. He has more power at his disposal than you and I personally in and of ourselves have. He has thousands of years of experience at deceiving and manipulating people. 
He is very persistent in his attacks. There is nothing that you and I can do in our own strength that's gonna cause him to flee. The key command here is submit yourself to God. Why? The word submit means to arrange yourself under. Frankly, Satan comes to me to attack me and attempt me. He's not concerned about me. But you know who he has no, no power and no control and no authority over? God. So when the attack comes, when the temptation comes, I arrange myself under God and he has an answer to God. I love how John Phillips said it. Here's how he said it. He said, when we submit ourselves to God, it leaves the devil face to face with him. And Satan is no match to God. So what we do is, when the moment of temptation comes, when the attack comes, when we in our flesh are weak, here's what we do. We submit ourselves to God. We put ourselves under his care and under his control and let him fight the battle for us. We submit to God. Secondly, we draw near to God. And here's the result. He will draw near to you. Verse 8. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Ever since sin entered the world, it brought division and separation between God and man, right? You and I, when we sin against God, we experience that, man. It seems like there's a distance that's there. Adam and Eve experienced that in a very physical sense as they were removed from the Garden of Eden. God is a very present help. He is in all places at all times. He never leaves us or forsakes us. That's a wonderful truth. But the reality is when we sin against God, we can feel a million miles away. We get glimpses of that every now and then, don't we? We can love someone and care for them and yet there can be an issue in our hearts towards them. And literally, we could sit right beside them in a worship service or we could sit right beside them on a love seat in our living room. And yet, if there's an issue between us, we could be sitting beside each other physically and be a million miles away. Spiritually, we sin against God. There's a distance that's there. What did he say in Isaiah last week? Your sin has separated you from God. So what does James say? He says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. I think that's what David did in Psalm 51, verses 10 through 12. When David came before God, broken, drawing near to God, the Bible says he prayed, Oh God, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and sustain me with a willing spirit. What's he doing? He is drawing near to God. He's coming with a broken heart, with a contrite spirit, confessing his sins, pleading for God to restore him to a right relationship. I think that's what James had in mind when he's talking about the cleansing and the purification that would take place, being miserable and mourning and weeping. It's the idea that we're drawing near to God, confessing, turning from, abandoning the things that we've done and completely turning to the Lord. But what's the third thing? The third thing in verse 10 is this. The third secret to victory is that we are to humble ourselves in the presence of the Lord. As you humble yourself before God, the wonderful promise is he will raise you up. James concludes with the obvious. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord. I believe that James is describing what is needed for repentance, but also what is needed for ongoing victory. Because the very moment you think, I've got it. God, I'm good from here. I've got victory over this issue. The very moment you think you've got it, the temptation and the weakness comes, doesn't it? 
And God is describing for us this humility that we must continue to walk in. Let me give you one closing thought and we'll be done. Romans chapter 7, verse 24. The Apostle Paul comes to a very, um, I mean, just sobering conclusion about his own sinful nature. And he says this, he says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? Who will set me free from the body of this death? To be honest with you, if that's really all that you read in dealing with the nature of our flesh, it would be a pretty hopeless picture, wouldn't it? I mean, if, if Paul would come to the conclusion, this great godly leader and say, oh, wretched man that I am, this dead old man is dying and it's destructive and all these different things, there's no hope. I mean, if we read that, we'd be thinking, if there's no hope for Paul, surely there's no hope for me. But Paul didn't end there. Paul knew there was a way to have victory. Paul knew there was a way that the old, dead, dying flesh could be redeemed and be transformed to be a life that would honor God. Paul knew there was a way to be victorious over the flesh. So here's the next thing he said in verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our, say it with me, Lord. The word Lord literally means to be the ruler. Paul understood the key to victory was found in believing in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And I believe in this context, daily surrendering to the lordship and rule of Christ. I want to encourage you this morning. I don't know where you're at. I don't know your background. I don't know, you know where you're at spiritually today. You, you may be here today and you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Friend, I want you to know this morning, the only way you can experience the gift of God's forgiveness and the joy and the promise of heaven is to believe in Jesus and accept him as your Lord and Savior. If you've never done that today, I wanna invite you. You can be forgiven, you can be saved by trusting in Christ. But if you're here this morning and you've already made that decision, I want you to know this morning, yes, the struggle and the battle with our flesh is real, but you don't have to let the flesh rule your life. You can be ruled by the Lord Jesus Christ by daily surrendering to him. The key to the victory is found in one person. It's not in you. Pastor, I, 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 man, I feel hopeless from this message. I can't do it. No, you can't. The victory's not in you. And I want you to know, the victory's not in me. I don't have a magical wand to wave and say, now therefore go and be changed. I, it's not me. The key to victory in your life is found in one person. It's in Jesus Christ. It's in Jesus Christ. So today I wanna ask you, it might be the first time in your life, or today maybe it's been a long time, you've been hindered for a while, I wanna ask you to trust the Lord and surrender your life to him. Thank you so much for taking time to listen to this podcast. We encourage you to come and join us right here on our campus. We're located right next to the county fairgrounds here in Harrisonburg, Virginia. If you have any questions about the church, any question about the message, feel free to email us or call us and let us know. And we look forward to seeing you soon. God bless you.